New Horizon has been serving the church in Northern Ireland since 1989, and we're delighted to bring you this talk today. We trust you will be blessed through this ministry. Wow, it's great to be here in Northern Ireland. You've been keeping it a secret from us all Brits. I think you've been trying to keep, us, keep it hidden, the Emerald Isle. I've been on the beach again today, went surfing at Portrush. I'm going to tell all my friends in England to come here on their holidays. No, no, not really. I'm going to keep it a secret as well, like you lot. <laughs> it's been absolutely amazing. What a privilege to be here with you. And you know, one of the things I love about traveling and, and you know, being invited, having these opportunities to gather, it's not just to, to kind of be here on the main stage. That's the bit that terrifies me. It's be, to be uh, sitting with leaders in the lounge and very often in the car. And um, so often, you know, you find out the quality of a movement by the people who drive you to and from the venues. Uh, and I've been driving leaders to venues over the years. And I, I listen and I watch and I just think, oh, you know, what's going on here? And is what I see up the front uh, what I'm actually seeing in the back room? And I just want to say I've been so blessed. Uh, I've had so many precious moments in the car, especially with you, Alan, uh, just sharing uh, faith stories and just seeing the heart of the leaders in this network and movement. I want to say to you all again, uh, there's a precious thing that Lord is doing here and there are precious leaders here who are faithful to the Lord and, and have got an incredible ministry and I just feel so privileged to be here. I want to encourage you to encourage them and pray for them and to support this movement and this ministry because you know, I'm so excited for what God is going to continue to do through you. I want to bring something tonight, building what I said yesterday, uh, particularly looking at this uh, interesting passage uh, in Mark's gospel. Jesus turns up at Simon's mother-in-law's house and there's a problem. Because in the culture, Simon's mother-in-law was there to serve the house and yet she was ill and there's this strange kind of instrumentalization of Simon's mother, which was in accordance with the culture. Jesus heals her in order that she can serve the house. And um, you're thinking, like, when you've just recovered, I'm not sure it's the first thing you want to do to get stuck into the kitchen, but this faithful lady, she gets up and she serves the house, and, and Jesus is there uh, in the house, and he, he's initiated an act of healing, his first kind of primary act of healing in this gospel for the sake of the service of the house. You know, he's equipped the saints to serve the house first. And, and the Lord is leading leaders into reformation, I believe, in this season to serve the house again, to serve the church with a renewed heart. Lots of people ask me, you know, what do you think the pandemic's been all about spiritually? And I honestly, I can't tell you. But I can tell you what I've prayed for. I've prayed that we don't return to normal, but we see a reformation of leadership in Christ's church today. Now, I'll be really honest with you. I, I know it's, I want to take no, I want to take risks tonight because I'm, I'm not coming back tomorrow. So, you know, if you don't come back, I won't know about it. But what I want to say is, you know, the danger is that we have created a, a schematology, if you like, a hierarchy that supports our insecurity in leadership. And, and that's how we remunerate ourselves for the lack of other obvious remuneration in the life of Christian leadership and ministry. Now, that, that's a great challenge, and, I, and I, I receive that upon myself as well. And what I see here is that Jesus establishes his ministry not on a desire to be successful in human terms. So the first miracle is the miracle of serving the house, the enabling of 
the ministry, if you like, of the first church, you could argue. That the first church is microcosmically evident in this first house. That these early disciples gathered together and this venue became a place of healing and of deliverance as an early sign prophetically to the church that would be built on the later disciples following Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, it says here, that evening at sundown they brought him all who were sick and oppressed by demons and the whole city was gathered together at the door. Now Jesus has just performed one miracle at this point and that's to heal Simon's mother's servant of the house. And yet here, the whole town, the city it says, arrives at the door for healing. Now you could imagine that at this moment, Jesus is going to say, ah, here we all are. It's an opportunity for me to demonstrate my power in huge ways. But look, what's he do? He healed many, although it does not say all, he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So he was not seeking elevation or celebration. He was simply ministering out of who he was. But then shockingly, if you go on into this artificial paragraph break, uh, and rising very early in the morning, whilst it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Now, I want you to be shocked by Jesus at this point, because remember, the whole city has arrived at the door for healing, because they've heard the story that Simon's mother was healed. Many have received healing and deliverance from demons. Can you imagine the broken bodies of the wounded lying on the floor, waiting through the dark hours in the hope that they might catch a glimpse of Jesus the next morning. But Jesus anonymously leaves the house whilst it's still dark and tells no one of where he's going. How do we know that's true? Well, we know because the lost sheep go to find the good shepherd up the mountain. The lost sheep go to search out for the good shepherd and say, where were you? At the very start of Mark's gospel, the disciples rebuke Jesus for leaving the scene of his first miracle. They go and seek him out. And they say in verse 37, they find him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. Can you imagine the scene of all these people hoping for healing, searching for this man Jesus who's performed these incredible wonders in their city the night before, but mysteriously vanished before the break of dawn. I want you to be shocked by Jesus because in our society, you'd be there healing, turning the lights on, maybe putting on a white suit and bringing a little smoke, healing the whole city, getting up early in the morning because you know, you, but not leaving the house, but making sure everyone knows you're there, then carrying on the healing ministry until every single person is healed, making sure everyone knows, you know, you're the person who's got the power. Jesus doesn't celebrate the success of healing Jesus goes back into the origin of his power. He disappears up the mountain to pray because he makes intimacy with God his priority in ministry. And if I'm looking for a reformation in leadership in the church post-pandemic is that we would return to that place where we make intimacy with God the priority of our ministry. And from that place, every other aspect of our leadership flows. It's so interesting 
that despite these lost sheep's rebuke of Jesus, he doesn't even respond to him. He directs the course for where God has called him to go next. He doesn't say to the disciples, oh yeah, disciples, I'm really sorry. I just came up here for spending some time with God in prayer. Uh, I'll come back and finish the job. He just says, let's leave this place and they depart. And he went throughout Galilee preaching in the synagogues and casting out demons. Let us go on to the next town that I may preach there also, for that is why I came. Now I want you to hold that piece of scripture in your hearts right now because you know, the reality of our experience is that many of us in our life and in our leadership, and I want to use the leadership in the broadest uh, term here so everyone is included in this conversation, is that we are in danger of becoming goal-driven and target-hungry. And, and this is not just a challenge for, for, for those in direct Christian leadership, but for every one of us, whether we're serving on the coffee rotor, whether we're stewards on the doors, whether we're ministering amongst the children in the worship band, we become goal-driven and target-hungry. And we're taught at a young age that this is a good way to live, that actually we are there to achieve goal and, and to identify vision, and we describe target. I um, went through a little dry season, I think, in my ministry, probably about seven years ago. And I'd been working hard, leading my own church. Uh, there was your typical experience of, of you know, great acceleration and then great deceleration. You know, great moments and then you know, really tough moments. I remember uh, arriving in this place, uh, and it, it's an Anglican church. Now, Anglican churches have a unique smell. We call that Anglican damp. And you can go into a church anywhere in the world, close your eyes and you'll know it's Anglican just by the smell. I remember going to a church in New Zealand. It, had this, it has this incredible musty sweet and sour smell. I don't know where they get it from or how they like project it into the churches, but guarantee you can just smell an Anglican church a mile off. And, and I, I walked into this new church that I had, I had just become the vicar of and I remember being overwhelmed by the smell of Anglican damp. And I took the PCC, that's the church council, away on a retreat. And I was really hoping that the Lord was going to reveal spiritual things to the people about what he was going to do. And I sent them out into groups for some blue sky thinking. That was an opportunity to pray and seek the Lord. And, and on four out of the five groups at the very top line, it said, new toilets. I thought, is this the real spiritual ambition of the church that I've just taken over, that we might have new toilets? But I think we all agreed that the smell in the church was so bad, we had to do something about it. So we spent, I think, 19,000 pounds replacing the toilets. It seemed like a great extravagance, seeing as I really wanted a heart for mission. But I was reassured that if we sorted out the toilets, people would come. Normally to use the toilet, but people would still come. I spent all this money, and I remember six months later, I sat down having hopefully achieved a target because I was goal-driven. And then I was overwhelmed by the smell of Anglican damp once again. And you know, my heart really sank. I thought, Lord, have I really spent all this money so we might not achieve my goal? And about three months later, I was walking around the building. It was a huge Anglican building. And at the back, we had a medical practice. It was that big, 15,000 patients on roll. And there was a small blue door at the back of the building, and I didn't frequent that part because that was largely controlled by the doctor's surgery. But I, I saw the door and I just thought, you know what, I'm going to go in there today. 
I was really short of power and authority in my church at the time. I thought, you know, I'm going to exercise some of my authority by at least opening the door. So I said to the caretaker, you know, I don't want to go in the door at the back by the medical practice. He said, oh, no, you don't want to go in there. And I said, no, I really do. And the more he said, no, the more I said, I really do. I'm trying to impress you with my leadership opportunity. Give me the keys. And he came forward at last reluctantly with a set of keys. And I unlocked the door and armed like Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom with a stick and my camera torch iPhone, I fought my way through the cobwebs. And there before me was a couple of steps. And on the second step was just lapping this brassy water. And I, I got a great waft of Anglican damp. It turned out that the basement of the church, which was ginormous, had been filled with a local stream. And underneath the whole church was just a giant flood. So I phoned the local, the local fire brigade you know, on the telephone and I put on my best Anglican voice. I said, oh, hello, uh, it's the new vicar here. Uh, just moved in. Uh, unfortunately, my uh, church seems to be flooded. I didn't tell them it was flooded in sort of 1917. I just said, it seems to be flooded. Would you mind, you know, popping around and maybe pumping it out? And amazingly, they came round and spent the next four or five hours pumping out the basement of my church. And you know, it was just like the inside of the Titanic. It, it, there was the sort of rusted detritus of scout groups through the ages, all lying there before me. You know what we did was we, we, we got skips and we cleared out the basement of the church and we installed a pump to kind of keep away any future water. And then a few months later, a young man came to me and said, I've just got married, Will, and, and my new wife, she hates me doing weights in our sitting room. You know, is there anywhere I can do weights? And I said, oh, I've got just the place for you. And he said, I have a gym in the basement of the church. And every morning, young men went down there to build their muscles and listen to worship music. And this journey was to like, turn this broken part of our setting into this gym where there was, you know, spiritual and physical muscles were grown. We went from having this sort of shame basement into a, an integrity gym. We want to see heart change, you know, in our leadership. Because I believe so many of us are, are goal-driven and target-hungry to the expense of what's really going in the basement of our hearts today. We can be busy putting in flashy new toilet blocks on the ground floor. We can polish our story so we look great. But I wonder sometimes whether our motivation has gone sour. And the more we are chased by that mismatch, the more we'll smell that on the ground floor. You know, the Lord is calling us for a reformation of leadership that pumps out the shame basement and replaces it with an integrity gym. And that integrity, Jim, is founded on the idea that the primacy of my ministry is rooted in the relationship I have with God the Father on the mountain. Now, I'm ashamed at how little time I spend on my knees compared to the amount of time I spend in the pulpit. You know, the reality is unless I get that in balance, unless I have more time on my knees than I do standing at the front, then my ministry is on a trajectory downwards and away from the orientation that God has for me. Now, those early disciples couldn't understand why Jesus would forego the glory of this healing ministry in this first moment for time on the mountain alone in the darkness. And that is the greatest challenge to leadership that we face today. That we've become so goal-driven and so target-hungry, we've forgotten the reason that we're here in the first place. You know, we have to come back to that place of saying, just like Jesus, I want to climb the mountain in 
in obscurity in order that I might encounter God again in power. And Jesus brings to mind this story over and over again. When I ask leaders about vision, they always tell me goal. You know, what's your vision? Oh, we want to have a youth group with you know, 25 young people. What's your vision? Oh, we want to you know, see 1,000 people converted this year. You know, that's a goal. What, what's your vision? Oh, we want to get a new AV set at the front of church. That's a goal. You know, what's your vision? Well, we really want to see a, sort of a church plant in the local neighborhood. That's a goal. You see, we've exchanged language of vision for the reality of goal. We set goals before us in the hope to attain them. And on their own, goals aren't problematic. But they are problematic when we escape the reality of what vision actually means. Because living visionally is not living accordant to goals. Let me just explain that for a moment. Now, if you think about our reality, if you score a goal, who, who, any football fans in, in the room right now? Ah, oh, good. Just a few, just a handful. And there are other sports that people do around here that I don't know about. I live between Fulham and, uh, and Chelsea, so I kind of get to enjoy whoever scores loudest first. The funny thing about footballers is they score a goal, but when they've scored and celebrated, which lasts about, you know, 20 seconds at most, they've forgotten they've even scored and they go back to charging around the field again. Many of us will live our lives not visionally, not in accordance with the reality of how we're called to live, but in terms of how many goals we can receive, where we get a dopamine hit in our own mind that makes us feel good because we've actually achieved something putting up new loos in church. It makes you feel good for a moment, but it's the realities. It's not the work you need to do. Living visionally is not bouncing like a pinball between one goal to the next goal to the next goal to the next goal. And in Christian leadership, because leaders aren't remunerated in the way they are in the world, we can find ways of feeding ourselves and our egos to pay ourselves back, to remunerate ourselves for the work that we're doing for the Lord. It's so easy that we create a scheme that serves us rather than serves him who called us. And success has become our idol. I was reading a really fascinating article by Jordan Light writing for the Scientific American about climbers who climb over 8,000 meters. And climbers who climb Everest are in great risk. Climbers who climb up Everest, of those climbers, only 15% die on the way up. But 56% of the people who die on Everest die on the way down. Now the mathematicians in the room are wondering where everyone else dies. Let me just tell you, the other people who die on Everest die in camp normally by injury, accident, avalanche. But the people who are actually moving, the people who are moving up the mountain, of those people climbing upwards, only 15% die. But 56% of the people who die, by far and away, the greatest number of people who die on Everest, die climbing down the mountain. But you know, I've never met a climber who says, I'm training to climb down Everest. But that would be far safer, far greater, to say, I'm training to climb down Everest, since climbing down is a place of greatest risk. Now, in leadership, we could spend so much time being orientated around success stories. How can I climb up? But what we really need to know is, how can I climb back down again? And that climbing down requires a humility that says, actually, climbing down is my way of climbing up as Jesus climbed up. So when Jesus went up the mountain to meet with God, if you like, we are climbing down the mountain to meet with God. We're climbing away from the success story that feeds our own ego. Think about it biblically for the moment. Think about the, the kind of biblical greats. Gideon, I'm not going to spend too much time on this. Can you hear a great sermon about him tomorrow? 
But Gideon performed an unbelievable defeat of the Midianite soldiers with just 300 men. You'll remember the story really well. But who has heard a sermon preached about the final chapters of Gideon? Anyone? Anyone at all? Anyone know what happened to Gideon? A few people. <laughs> Great. You know, Gideon's story doesn't end well because he, he achieves the greatest of success. And yet, at the end of his story, he creates an ephod out of the rings from the noses of, 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 of those soldiers that he's defeated. And he, and he, and he uses that as a, as a kind of sign of his great victory, of his great success. And it becomes a snare to him. And in Judges 8.27, it simply says, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. And Gideon dies in ignominy. And the end of the story is a sad story because Gideon loved the success he achieved, but he failed to recognize the need to climb down the mountain and spend time again orientated to God the Father. Success has become an addiction to him, and it's not serving him because it's not visional living. Saul defeated the massive Amalekite army against all the odds, but he refuses to follow God's instruction uh, and then in 1 Samuel 15, 35, it says, the Lord repented that he'd made Saul king over Israel. Is that even possible theologically, that the Lord repented? I don't know how that works. Does the Lord say to himself, I'm, that was a mistake? Does the Lord make mistakes? I don't know how the Lord even repents. Does he say sorry to himself? But the Lord repented of the fact that he had made Saul king over Israel. There couldn't be a, a, a greater slight on a man than the Lord himself repenting of his own decision. And then David, of course, defeats, defeats the Ammonites. Uh, and, and then he celebrates by sleeping with uh, his greatest soldier's wife. And then he has his greatest soldier killed in battle. Uh, and, and again, his greatest success demonstrated his greatest failure. 2 Samuel eleven twenty seven says, but the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, I, I just want you to know that success is not why we're called into the kingdom of God. Jesus sets out at the very start of this gospel story that he's not there for success, he's there for servitude. He's not there to succeed in the eyes of man, but he's there to be faithful with God the Father. He's not there to celebrate the goal. He's there to spend time building intimacy with God and being equipped and empowered for the ministry that he's been called towards. I'm seeking a reformation in the church today that we might turn back to that place of making intimacy with God our priority. And as I said yesterday, when you, when you make security your priority, success becomes your inevitability. Like when security with God is all you hunger for, success is an outworking, it's a consequence. The danger with success is it never provides what we're hungering for. A couple of great psychologists, Holmes and Ray in 1969, developed a Holmes and Ray scale. You can see it here on the wall. Well, they, they were seeking to predict people's breakdowns in advance. And what they said was that if you spent less than 150 life change units, a qualification of 45 different kind of experiences within one 18-month period, you, you had a low risk of emotional breakdown. If you spent between 150 and 300 life change units in an 18-month period, you had a 50% chance of breakdown. But what they noted was if you spent more than 300 life change units in an 18-month period, they could predict an 80% probability of you having an emotional health breakdown. And that became a very, and has remained to be, a very significant and stable score system to help predict difficulty in the emotions in people's lives. 
But what's really notable about the Holmes and Ray scale is that some of the things that they mark out as being costly psychologically are really great things. Marriage costs you 15 life, 50 life change units. Can you imagine coming down the aisle and going, I hope you're worth it, this is costing me a lot of psychological stress. <laughs> or what about reconciliation? I mean, we're in the business of reconciliation in the church. Can you imagine being reconciled to someone and saying, wow, I'm, I'm going to have to lie down after this because this is extremely stressful for me. Or, or work cha changes or, or high achievement even. The reality is that stress is, is a byproduct of success. Success is not going to answer our problems. Success is not going to fulfill our, our desire for affirmation. Success is not going to repay us for our extension. We're not called for that. We're not called to that. We're called instead to reissue, to reinitiate our intimacy with God the Father. At the end of the day, success, I call it success. Success is just the, it's a stress that's a byproduct of doing well. Now, what I'm not wanting to exchange is, is if you like success for something less than. That's not what this talks about. This talks about your priority. And Jesus makes his priority intimacy with God, not the success of his ministry. That was inevitable on the basis of the fact that he was spending time with God in prayer. You know, I want to I share with you just in this last uh, 10 or 15 minutes, you know, my, this is a personal story for me. This is, this is me quite a number of years ago now. And my wife, it's not a great picture. We are on top of Kota Kinabalu, Mount Kinabalu in Borneo. I'd had an emotional health breakdown. And uh, in 2005, as I said yesterday, I was involved in the London bombings. I suffered complex PTSD and an anxiety disorder. And as I said yesterday, I could make that story a really virtuous story about how I was wrapped up in this terrorist incident and I served the Metropolitan Police and ambulance service and the result was that I suffered psychologically. Or I could tell you a much more true story. I was goal-driven target hungry and wanted to make success for myself. I'd extended myself beyond my capacity and hadn't spent time making intimacy with God my priority. The result was I was already burned out when the bombs went off. And because I was burnt out when the bombs went off, I had no emotional resilience. I had no spiritual resilience and the result was I suffered spiritually and psychologically for a significant amount of time. Now, when you're suffering from an anxiety disorder that acute, you have panic attacks through the day and the night, and sometimes I'd have nine or ten panic attacks a night. I'd wake up in panic shaking. I'd be shaking most of the time. I'd have to lie down because I'd be shaking so much, uh, and, and, and it was a terrifying time. It's hard to describe how difficult panic is at that level. And, and after I'd stabilized and was recovered about six months in, I, my wife said, you know, I really think we need to go away to continue to assist you with your recovery. And I was thinking, you know, the beach in Spain maybe poolside in Greece. But even that sounded quite risky because that was a way, so maybe, you know, maybe something closer to home like you know, a country hotel near Bath. That, that was about what I was up for. So my wife booked us a jungle trek in Borneo uh, <laughs> filled with like spiders and snakes and crocodiles. And then she, she said that we were going to climb the highest mountain in Southeast Asia, which is more than 14,000 feet high, um, 4,095 meters. And you know, what I found was that actually, you know, I didn't have the power to maintain success. 
I didn't have the drive to achieve success. But the mountain was interestingly split into these staircases of mud, 200 staircases they say up and 200 staircases down. And my wife is far stronger than I am and here shining really urged me up that mountain. She called me up the mountain. And at every staircase, she said, just look around and see how far you've come. And so every time I got to the top of a staircase, I looked back and gave thanks. And one staircase gave way to another, which gave way to another, which gave way to another. And then ultimately, about half past five in the morning, here we are standing on the top of that mountain. I can't say it was easy. I found it utterly terrifying. I didn't arrive first. She did. And going down was always harder than coming back up again. But I want you to know that, that actually the Christian life is not a call to succeed in terms of conquering the mountain. The Christian life is a, is, is a life of orientation, of gratitude towards God. That every step we move up, we look back and give thanks. And we look then to what the Lord might be calling us to next. If we, if we are mountain hungry, if we're gold driven, we forget our orientation to what God has called us to. We experience a life which is diminished and disempowered and ultimately is driven by our own ambition, not by an ambition for intimacy with him. Uh, when I was experiencing this dry patch in the church, I read A.W. Tozer's book, uh, Searching for God. Or, or, uh, it was a, it's a great book. Uh, I, was, I was hungry for the Lord. This often called pursuing God. Uh, and uh, I was searching for him and I was pursuing him. I did that for about a month. I was completely exhausted by the end of it. And then I felt the Lord was saying to me, well, what are you doing? Why are you pursuing me? I'm right here. You know, we can be pursuing God. We can be goal-hungry, target-driven. But actually, what we've got to go back to is the basics of saying, what's it look like to make intimacy with God my priority? Here's six, three things for you. The first thing is, is that opportunities rarely ever dry up. You know, we can be lost to opportunity. Someone says, oh, you should do this. Well, if it feeds our ego, it can feel very appealing. We can love opportunity, we can feel blessed and encouraged and we can feel ingratiated when someone says, hey, I'd love you to do this. But what's the Lord saying to you? And where's your heart out around that, or that opportunity? Because if someone's asked you now, they'll probably ask you again. But don't make opportunity the reason why you choose to do something. Make God's call the opportunity, make God's call the reason. Secondly, you can never get enough affirmation. You know, we leak affirmation. And if you think success is going to be the ultimate affirmation of you, then you're barking up the wrong tree right now. I want to save you a load of disappointment and bother. The fact is that, you know, you can never be affirmed perfectly enough by anyone. And you can never be approved of perfectly by anyone. Rick earlier was praying that there wouldn't be too much criticism of the preacher tonight. Immediately at that moment, I was like, oh, what did they say last night? <laughs> you know, the reality is, however confident you might look, if you made success your goal, if you're goal-driven and target-hungry, you will leak affirmation. You're only as good as your last great effort. And even that probably wasn't good enough. Again, Jesus made intimacy with God his priority. At his baptism, before he'd achieved anything, if you like, in the public sphere, God says, this is my son whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. Because the kingdom of God is not based upon your achievement for your approval. Your approval is prior approval in order that you might then exercise the kingdom of God and see the fruit come. You know, we need to take the opportunity to walk out of COVID with greater confidence in who God has called us to be. 
in his approval of us in order that we can begin to minister out of grace rather than towards grace. Now, we need to operate with the humility of acknowledging that this platform isn't for our own ingratiation, for our own approval. It's for God's service. And and, and whatever platform you're operating on, let me encourage you to use this interruption in the scheme of our drive for success and achievement to say, no, I'm going to reorientate myself right now and get up the mountain with God to pray. You know, in some translations of this text at the beginning of Mark's gospel, it says, whilst it was still dark, Jesus slipped out of the house to pray. Now that sounds kind of, it sounds wrong to me, like Jesus shouldn't slip anywhere. There should be carpets and trumpets and palm branches and hallelujahs. Now Jesus chose to step away from notoriety into intimacy. We can wonder what this means, but I just want to invite you back into that private space with Jesus today. And say, God, would you reorientate my heart again? I long to get my approval from you, not from what the world can offer me. Lists can be our lords. You know, I did an emotional experiment a few years ago. I decided that I would trust my brain to remind me of everything that was important. It was, it was the best month I've ever had. It was brilliant. I was super creative, I felt like super alive, I didn't feel bossed by anything at all. It was absolutely amazing and I couldn't recommend it more highly enough. The only trouble was that that my brain reminded me of everything that was important to me. It just didn't remind me of anything that was important to anybody else. So kind of I realized at the end of my month when I'd forgotten loads of things that, that were important to other people for me to do, that I actually had to reinstate my lists. But I want, I want to take that principle forward and say, look, lists, I mean, some people even add things that they've done to lists that, and then cross them off again to make themselves feel better. Does anyone, can anyone own up to that? <laughs> yes, lots of people here, they do that. They add things that they've done to a list and then they cross it out to celebrate the fact that they've achieved it. That's, I don't need to say anything else about lists just to know that a lot of people can relate to that reality. You know, if there's ever evidence that we long for approval in life, it's that we add stuff to lists only to cross it out to make ourselves feel better that we've achieved something great. Now, I just want to say, like, be Lord of your list. I've learned to rip up my lists every day. I never translate onto a new list. I just start my list straight and say, God, what do you will for me today? Of course, what do you will for me to do as a responsible parent for my children, as a loving husband for my wife, as a servant of your church, as a colleague, as a friend? What do you will for me to do? Be responsible with your lists, but don't let your list be responsible for you. Let the Lord say who you are. Let the Lord call you into daily action. Let intimacy with the Lord be your energy for your day. There's always a crisis. You know, so often, we might not have gold and glory in the life of the church, but we can make being the fixer our idol. We can make it our announcement. We can make it our megaphone. Look how many people I've helped. We can create crises that they win resolved just as much as we add things to list that we then cross out. I've been a crisis manager this week. I've sorted out this crisis and helped this person and fixed this crisis. There's always a crisis. There was a crisis on the doorstep of Simon Peter's mother's house. Lots of crises, all lying there in the dirt. 
But remember, whilst it was so dark, Jesus slipped out of the house, went up the mountain, and made intimacy with God his priority. You cannot affirm your way to heaven. You cannot be a group celebrated. There is no trust pilot on the door of heaven that says you have a fantastic five-star record for supporting people in ministry. You just got to recognize that the priority is intimacy. You also cannot be celebrated by everybody. I just want to give you one free tip tonight. That's that some people will never like you. I know that's hard to receive, but I want you to receive it right now because it will save you so much heartache. Some people will never like you, even in the church. It might not be right. It might be unjust, but some people just won't like you. Working to be liked by others, it's an exhausting, straining, uh, life-limiting experience. But again, we can think, if only they liked me, if only I served or preached or worked more perfectly, then they would celebrate me and everything would be okay. Jesus lived and worked and served perfectly, and yet they nailed him to a cross and they spat in his face. Some people will never like you. The Lord has not called you to be liked. The God, God, God has called you to know that you are loved. And out of that place of love, there you will minister effectively. And finally, only you can unlock your own disciplines. You know, so much of this stuff is, is on us. It's on you to say, yeah, I hear what you're saying. I'm not quite sure how to put it into action. Uh, if someone just could explain it to me more perfectly, then I'll begin to make that my orientation. You know what to do. You know what it looks like to make intimacy your priority. You know what that quiet space looks like. You know what 6.30 in the morning sounds like. Uh, you know what being on your knees feels like. You know what worship sounds like. And make those things your priority and success will befall you. Abraham Maslow described something called meta-motivation. He said, you know, the ultimate sort of expression of man is his meta-motivation. Maslow really was talking about the gifts of the Spirit of God, the, the fruit of the Spirit of God. This great fruit that we live by. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Make your meta-motivation, make your visional living these things. Because the difference between being target-hungry and goal-driven is this visional way of living that at its very center has a methodology. It's a methodological way of being. It's got nothing to do whether we achieve the targets or not. It has everything to do with whether we are expressing those gifts, those fruits of the Spirit in our lives today. You know, in Matthew 7, 17, Jesus says, likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. You know, good fruit is a consequence of being a good tree. You, you are not being asked tonight to do anything other than just be a good tree. You know, a good tree does not force good fruit. The good tree does not go, I have to keep on producing good fruit all the time, otherwise someone will cut me down. The good tree has seasons of barrenness. The good tree has seasons of fruitfulness, but the tree's responsibility is just to be a good tree. You know, I wonder whether in the church our life is so orientated around trying to force fruit that God hasn't called us to bear, that we've lost sight of what it means to just be a good tree. 
Tonight, can you commit your life to just saying, Jesus, I just want to be a good tree because I want to tell you right now, a consequence of you being a good tree is that you will bear good fruit. I can guarantee it. It's absolutely true. You do not need to depend upon producing fruit to talk about your nature. If you focus on a good tree, it will achieve what you're hoping. It will produce good fruit. At the end of Romans 8.37, we're called to be more than conquerors. Hyper Nikai is the Greek here. We're told, if you like, to go beyond. It's impossible to be more than a conqueror. You, you either conquered or you haven't. But what Paul's saying is conquering is not the end of your story. Success is not the end of this Christian life. Success isn't the thing we're really called towards. We're not meant to be goal-hungry, target-driven people. We are more than that. We are more than conquerors. We're called to be those in intimate relationship with Jesus because only from that space, only from that more than space are we ever going to be an example of what the kingdom really looks like in this hurting and broken world. I don't want to see a diminishment of the fruit in the new harvest. I I don't want to see the new horizon shrink. Uh, I I don't want to see a limitation on any of the ministries that are flowing out of this center. I just want to exhort you tonight to say, make sure it's flowing out of a place of intimacy with God. Make sure you've gone up the mountain first. Make sure you've made your priority prayer. Make sure you've made the Bible your heart stone. Make sure you've chosen faithful collaboration and accountability and discipleship, the lifeblood of your ministry. Just say, Jesus, tonight, I just want a restoration of intimacy with you. I want to be a good tree. I want to trust you for good fruit in my life. Amen. Why don't we pray? I think the band are going to come back and they're going to lead us in a song of worship. Let's pray together as we make this commitment. Lord Jesus, tonight we acknowledge that we are target-driven people, goal-hungry We've made success our idol in so many ways. We've tried to force fruit on this tree. And yet, Lord, tonight we want to commit ourselves again to a restoration of intimacy with God. Just as you did, Jesus, we want to go up the mountain tonight to pray. We want uh, an integrity basement. We pray, Father, right now we would receive from you all that we need for a life of holiness and godliness. We give you thanks again for your son Jesus who died and rose for us. We place all of our store in him tonight and we pray, Holy Father, equip us for those works that you've prepared in advance for us to do. Help us to be satisfied just in a relationship of intimacy with you and restore our hunger again for that quiet place where we can know that we are loved, where we can receive again your Holy Spirit and we can be empowered for a life that demonstrates those fruits of the Spirit in this dark and broken world. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this talk. If you would like to know more about New Horizon, please visit our website at newhorizon.org.uk.